Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of, his, of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked of them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. And then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant and had been, that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And the people joined in the covenant. This is the word of God to us. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thank you so much. Hey, I think we should give her a hand for saying like 14 strange names. That's great. Well done. It's like the worst nightmare. It's like, hey, do you want to read our teaching text with 18 strange names? Great. Man, so glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I love lost and found stories. I love them. I just love to read about stories of treasure that has been lost or misplaced and found again. Some of these stories I've shared with you, and you may have heard these before, but I want to just share them again. And imagine if this happened to you or to someone close to you, somebody that you knew. In 1991, there was a flea market enthusiast who uh, was at a flea market, and he found a picture frame that he liked. So he purchased it for $4, and he took it home, and he set it down on a shelf at the house, and he didn't think much about it. And then a couple years later, he was uh, changing out the picture, and he found an ancient document behind the picture frame, and it happened to be a first edition copy of the Declaration of Independence, if you can believe it. It was valued at a little over $1 million dollars, And somehow, someone along the way had placed it back there for safekeeping, and it had been lost throughout history until this guy found it. And these stories are 
not just isolated events. There's a lot of these stories out there. Uh, you may have heard about the contractor who found $182,000 behind a bathroom wall that he was renovating, and then he and the owner get it in this big fight about who the $182,000 belongs to. Is it the contractor who found it or the house that he was renovating? And then there's a, another person who bought a $3 Chinese bowl at a yard sale, and come to find out later, this bowl was actually over a thousand years old. It comes from the northern Song dynasty of China, and it was valued at $2.2 million. And then maybe the strangest story of all, this is like almost hilariously weird, uh, a, a husband and a wife were walking their dog in California in their own backyard. So walking their dog in their backyard, <clears throat> and they stumble across eight cans of ancient gold coins that are worth $10 million. Can you imagine that? You just like stumble across eight gold cans in your backyard. That's amazing. And these stories are just absolutely incredible of lost and found treasures, treasures that have been misplaced or forgotten in time and then later rediscovered. Now, what we're talking about today is something even more valuable than all of those things combined that was lost for several generations and then found some time later. We're talking about what happens when an entire culture loses something of great value and then finds it again later. So that's what we're talking about. If you're just joining us, we're in a series called Renewal. And the idea behind the series, we're going to say this every week, the idea behind the series is that more than you need a new life hack, more than you need like a, 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 an easy button to hit, more than you need a paycheck to just spontaneously arrive in the mail, more than you need relationship advice. And by the way, all of those things are great and good and helpful, but more than you need any of those things, you need more of the presence of God. And we as a church need more of the presence of God. And that's what the series Renewal is all about. It's looking at these ancient pathways that the early church has always had of putting themselves in the way of experiencing more of the presence of God. How do you experience renewal and revival when you're in a place where you feel like you're dead inside or you're in desperate need for more of God to break through? That's what we're looking at today. And today, actually, what we're specifically talking about is how renewal comes about through the Word of God and how recovering the Word of God can bring about personal renewal and even revival among a whole group of people. And we're going to look at 2 Kings, because I don't know of a better passage to take you to than 2 Kings. And I know that that's like everybody's favorite book. They're like, I was hoping I would show up today and hear a sermon about 2 Kings, because I've been studying it all week. And so I'm here to say you're welcome. That's what we're doing. Let, let me give you some context real quick, because honestly, this is a passage of Scripture and even a whole series of texts that we don't interact with very much. So let me just kind of give you some context so that you can understand the backstory of what's happening. Uh, if you follow scripture in the storyline of the Bible, what you're going to find is that uh, the people of God were in slaves, uh, they were in slavery in Egypt for a little over 400 years. And then what God does by this powerful act is he delivers the people out of Egypt, they go across the Red Sea, and he's going to bring them to the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they show up to Mount Sinai and the presence of God comes down in power, and he speaks to them the word of God. This is called the law, and, and pretty soon he gives his people the law that's later kind of described as uh, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this story, this law, the word of God that was given to the people, it told the people of God who God was, what God was like, 
what God wanted for human flourishing and thriving, uh, what he expected of them. It told them who they were as the unique people of God. And it told them how to live and how to interact. So this was an incredible, incredible series of books that just helped the people form an identity as the unique people of God. So that's what happened. But then as you follow the story, and eventually you get to First and Second Kings, originally it was just called Kings. It's the same book. As you get to First and Second Kings, what you realize is that things had started to spiral downward. Over time, the people of God had forgotten the word of God. They'd neglected the law and the prophets. They'd neglected the Pentateuch. And eventually, they started to demand that they had a human king. Now, God's whole point was he wanted to be their king. And they said, we don't want you as king. We want a human king to rule over us. And so the book of First and Second Kings chronicles out the stories of 39 different kings over Israel and over Judah. Now, think about this. Out of 39 kings, there's only four of them that are good. Every time you read about this, the king, it'll say, this king reigned from this time to this time, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And out of 39 kings, only four of them were said to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Things get bleak and dark really fast. And the people of God, they slip and they slide, and they start to look more like the pagan nations that they were called to bless than they do the unique people of God. Eventually, in 2 Kings, you get to a guy, story of a guy named Manasseh, king over Israel. Manasseh is probably one of the worst, if not the worst, kings that Judah ever had. He was horrific. He basically adopted the worst of pagan practices, and he took the, the worship of Yahweh God, and he pushed it out, and he allowed the temple to be completely desecrated, and then he built all these altars to all these pagan gods and pagan deities, and he began to worship these other pagan gods and convinced the people of God to worship these pagan gods. And it got so bad that he even takes his own son, one of his own sons, and he sacrifices his own son to a god, Molech, by burning him alive. And can you imagine just the horrific, like, how deep and steeped in darkness do you have to be to take your own son and kill him to another god? And then he kills innocent people all over uh, Judah and is just known as a horrific king. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then after Manasseh, his son Ammon, named after the Egyptian sun god Ammon-Ra, uh, Ammon rises to power, and Ammon is as bad as his dad. And eventually it gets so bad that the people of Judah kill Ammon. They kill him and they're like, we can't handle any more of this. And so they try to start a coup. But the people that kill Ammon end up getting killed themselves by other people. And so Ammon's son, Josiah, arises to power at the whopping age of eight years old. He's eight years old and he becomes the king of Judah. And the situation by the time he became king was really, really dark. Uh, There was no one that knew anything about God about Yahweh. The, the law, the book of the law had been lost for 57 years. And the only thing that the people of God knew was just the worship of all these other pagan gods. So that's the backstory of this. this Judah is at literally the darkest time in their history by the time this eight-year-old boy arrives to power. There's political upheaval, there's moral decline, there's social and all kinds of other brokenness. I mean, this is a really, really dark time. Now, before we read more of the story and kind of unpack what happens, I want to just kind of juxtapose that cultural moment for them and our cultural moment today. 
right? Our cultural moment today is not quite the same, but there are some similarities with what's going on. We live in a time and in a place where the Bible is the, is the best-selling, most published book in the history of the world, on the one hand, and also one of the most neglected books, on the other hand. Chances are most of you have one or seven Bibles at your house, so it's not like a lack of resources or the Word of God. Like, we have, we have Bibles everywhere. But we live in a time and a place where, due to a lot of factors, we have a very strange relationship with the Bible, even as the people of God, if you're a follower of Jesus. And here's often what happens. Some people try to read the Bible, and they don't understand it. They get frustrated by it because it actually is kind of confusing at points. And so they just kind of throw up their hands, and they go, I, I, I can't do this. It was, it's confusing because it was written by over 40 different authors over about a thousand-year period and three different languages on two to three different continents and a culture that is very, very different than ours. So yeah, it's a little bit confusing at times. Some of us just throw our hands up and go, I, I can't understand this. Some people read it occasionally, but when they do read it, they always gravitate to their favorite passages. And I love the Psalms too. Okay, I love the Psalms. I think the Psalms are awesome, but there's actually other things in the Bible, and, and some of us, that's just kind of the one-track pony that we do. We just kind of run back to the same passages again and again, and, and the Bible has lost its beauty and become something that's stale. And then for other people, you read the Bible, and maybe it confuses you, and maybe it even gets to the point to where it angers you, because some of the things that are said, some of the things that are mentioned, and you're just going, who is this God, and what is this all about, and what is Christianity? So I get it. We have a strange approach to the Bible, but I, I want to say, as, as one of your pastors, you can boil all of that down to maybe two different realities in the room. So maybe the first approach that I commonly see with people in our church is what I want to call the conservative approach. Or another way to say this, this is the blind but illiterate belief approach. Let me just give you some stats. 85% of evangelical Christians believe that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. So 85%. The overwhelming majority of people that attend church at an evangelical church and consider themselves a Christian would say, I believe that, that the Bible is the authoritative true word of God, right? Now, hold that intention with these other stats. 53% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which is weird because not even Judaism or Islam agrees that God accepts the worship of all religions. 59% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. That's not true, right? Just if you're curious, we're going to have a whole sermon on the Holy Spirit and the way that he brings about renewal and revival coming up. And then here's the most startling one to me. 71% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. By the way, that's, that's like an ancient heresy called Arianism that was like totally, uh, you know, kind of dis- destructive to the early church in the fourth century. And not at all what the Bible teaches. Jesus wasn't created. He is the creator of all things. And so listen to this from uh, one president of Southern Seminary. He says, multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. A majority of adults think that the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Some of the statistics are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. 
Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are in big trouble. Now, here's my point. My point is not to make fun of anybody or to like, you know, accuse people of not knowing the Bible. My point is to say that a lot of us would articulate a belief that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. But on a functional level, we don't even know what it says. And often what we think it says is not what it says. So the conservative approach. The second approach that I see commonly as a pastor is what I want to call the progressive approach or the DIY Bible. And this is really, really common in our culture where um, either because of biblical illiteracy or because there are certain things in the Bible that offend us, we kind of pick and choose what we want to take and what we want to leave. And so we just kind of assume that there are parts of the Bible that I have the free reign to say, yeah, I like this part around forgiveness and salvation and the mercy of God, but this bit around sexuality and gender, I don't really care for. And we kind of pick and choose which parts we're going to leave behind and avoid and which parts we're going to embrace. And so here's my point, that somewhere along the way, whether you actually would affirm that this is the authoritative word of God for your life, or you would have issues with that statement, regardless, what's happened to many of us is that slowly over time, we've kind of lost this in plain sight, and instead have positioned ourselves as our own authority. So now I get to call the shots in terms of my sexuality and I get to call the shots in terms of my money and my career and how I spend my time and what I do with my life and how I view marriage or singleness or you fill in the blank and we've kind of just pushed the authority of this to the side and instead we've positioned ourselves as the ultimate authority. And I just want to ask you, like, if you are a follower of Jesus and you get to the place where you and Jesus disagree, who wins? Because if you win every time, then you actually don't believe that he is Lord, and this book means nothing. This is from Tim Keller. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So my point is this. You look at 2 Kings and the story of the law being lost, the word of God being lost, and the culture slipping into decline, and you look at our own culture, there is a lot of similarity. We have lost the Bible in plain sight, and now we are kind of our own authority. And by the way, this has not led to more thriving. This has not led to more human flourishing. This has not led to more happiness or joy. This has actually led to one of the most lonely cultures that's ever existed, one of the most isolated cultures that's ever existed, certainly the most anxious culture that's ever existed, and a, even a decline in happiness. And I won't bore you with all the details, but there's something called the World Happiness Report that the UN puts out every year, and they rate various nations on their happiness, and they have all these ways to like, figure out how a nation is happy or not. And the U.S. has been in decline the last four years. Right? Even the, the, the life expectancy rate is beginning to drop, which is a big sign that all is not well with our culture. My point is this. They lived in a really dark time, We live in a really dark time. And that is one of the greatest opportunities for a powerful move of God. So let me show you what happens in this story. Because they recover the word of God, and it actually recovers something in their culture that I think is really, really helpful. So 2 Kings 22. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the 
the son of Azillah, son of Meshullam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing that house, that is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house, but no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Look at verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shapen the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shapen, and he read it. And Shapen, the secretary, came to the king, and he reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shapen, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shapen read it before the king. Look at the response. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. So the first thing I want you to see is what I want to call just the rediscovery. The rediscovery of the book of the law. We're not exactly sure what was going on in young Josiah's heart, but there's a, there's a parallel story in the book of Chronicles. And what happens in Second Chronicles is that it says that from an early age, God had just grabbed a hold of Josiah's heart and even as an eight-year-old boy, he started to just have a, a desire to want to follow after Yahweh. And he started to even tear down various uh, I, I, idols and various altars that were built to pagan gods. And, and then eventually he gets this vision to go to the temple, the house of the Lord, and to repair it because it had been just sitting in desolation for so long. So he sends a crew. Hey, go assess the damage. Go collect the money. And let's figure out what we need to do to get some people in there to hire out some work and get this temple really repaired and fixed up. So as people are in the temple kind of assessing the damage and, you know, collecting all of the money, they stumble across this ancient scroll that had been lost for 57 years, and it was called the Book of the Law. Now, often the Book of the Laws is in reference to all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but most scholars agree that all that was found here is just the Book of Deuteronomy. The Book of Deuteronomy is basically a set of sermons that Moses gave to kind of unpack the deliverance that God had worked for the people of God and then some commands and expectations that God had as, as helping shape identity for his people. And what happens is they, they bring this book back and, and he just reads it to the king and the king is blown away. And here's my point. This rediscovery is not like he just goes and he grabs it and he's like, wow, that's an ancient document. Very cool. I'm going to put it off in a shelf somewhere and just let it sit. The whole point of a rediscovery is he rediscovers it by reading it. And it's by reading it that he rediscovers who God is. It's by reading it that he rediscovers what God had done. It's by reading it that he rediscovers what God actually was calling them to and how he expected them to live. And this rediscovery began to change Josiah from the inside out. Rediscovery is reading. And I think today there is a desperate need for us to rediscover our Bibles. And what might happen? What, might, what type of renewal could happen if we learn to rediscover it, not just by buying it, not just by having it, not just by even believing it, but by reading it? What could happen if we read it? One of the greatest things that ever happened in my life that literally, quite literally changed my life was when I rediscovered my Bible. 
I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. He pastors a church in Del City. Um, I, 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 I think I was born like in the aisle, you know, at some point, and that's just it's weird, but that's how it happened, and was in church as much as I can remember. I was homeschooled. Um, like, let me just, I don't know how else to tell you, like, I, we used to do, like, salutes to the American flag, the Christian flag, and the Bible, right? Which all three of that is very strange to me, but we used to do that, and, and all, like, the, the Bible was a big part of my upbringing, is what I'm trying to say. I believed it. I heard stories about it in Sunday school all growing up, and here's the reality. I never quite fully returned and rediscovered this book until I was 19 years old. When I was 19 years old, I started getting someone to ask me questions about something in the Bible that I didn't know, but because I grew up Southern Baptist, I was like, well, I know it's right, and I know it's true, I just don't know what the heck it says, you know? So I was like, yeah, the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it, like I had the whole line down and everything, but I didn't know what it said. So they kept asking me questions about these things, like, well, I guess I should just read the Bible. So me and some friends were like, how about we read the Bible in three months? We'll read Genesis to Revelation in a three-month time. And it was insane. It was like 22 chapters a day, like a long chunk of reading every day, but we did it. And at some point in that process, I was completely wrecked because I realized that God is not who I thought he was. He is so much better and so much more terrifying, and so much more bizarre, and I can't even put it in a box. It's like, oh my gosh, who is this God that I have grown up around, but I've never really just read the story. I've not really read what he's done. And and then I begin to have an overwhelming sense of my own sin, and of the holiness of God, and the grace of God, that even though there's, the story is, is a perpetual story of the people of God going down and spiraling down, and yet he pursues after them, and he loves them, and he's so gracious and patient and faithful, and I was just blown away at the patience of God. And then Jesus enters the scene, and reading the stories, and I, I rediscovered my Bible, and quite literally, that sparked a, a what I, what I want to say is almost the closest thing I've ever been a part of to a revival with me and my friends. It completely blew us away. People were getting saved left and right around us. We, we got a group of people together, and, and we just said, let's just start a Bible study, and, and here's, here's the big idea. We're going to read it, and then we're just going to do everything that it says. What a noble concept, right? Like, we're just going to read it, and whatever it says, we're just going to go do that. God was saving people like crazy. People were getting healed. It was, it was an incredible incredible experience. And it literally is why I got thrust into ministry. That Bible study ended up becoming a church that I helped plant and lead. And then that church merged with Frontline in 2014. The Bible is why I'm in ministry today, just by reading it. What might happen to you in your life if you read the Bible? Now, some of you are like, well, I'm definitely not going to read it now because I do not want to be a pastor. Well, don't worry. I don't, I don't think that's what's going to happen to you. But who knows what would happen? Maybe you'd get a vision for your life that is so much better than the American dream, you won't even believe it. Maybe you'll get a vision for your money and for the mission of God where you quit trying to do this hamster wheel thing of like, if I just get enough, then I'll be fully satisfied. Maybe you will sell it all and give it all away just to have more of Jesus and be on mission. I don't know what could happen to you. But renewal starts by rediscovering the word of God for what it is. 
Listen, I get it that it's confusing. I get it that it's hard to understand. If you start reading this and you're freaked out by it, that's perfectly normal and okay. But you can, eat, you can reach out to any one of our pastors and we would be thrilled to buy you coffee and to help you understand some tools and resources for how to understand and read this book. I think early on in ministry, my vision of Christian church planting was like, man, wouldn't it be so cool if we could just somehow release a couple hundred people just to go gangbusters for the mission of God on the world. Like hit up bars and hit up the places that no one else wants to go and go to the people that are unreached and just just be sold out for Jesus. And now, over 11 years into ministry, do you know what my vision, my radical vision for ministry is? Man, if we could just get a couple hundred people to read their Bibles four or five times a week, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. If we could just get you to like do a little less Netflix, a little less social media, a little less all the other, and just like open this up four to five days a week. Oh my gosh, what might happen in our church? The rediscovery. And this rediscovery leads to something else. Look at verse 11 of chapter 22. When the, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes Then he goes on in verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. God had kind of laid out a vision for humanity. They had done the polar opposite. He'd laid out blessings and curses in Deuteronomy and they had done nothing in the blessings category, and done everything in the curses category, which is basically throwing God away and then living life the way they want to live, and that always brings chaos and dysfunction and destruction. So he says, great is the wrath of God against us. And then look at this. He goes on, then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. This is chapter 23, verse 2. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah And all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar, and publicly he he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and the statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Look at what happens in verse four. This is bizarre. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out all of the temples of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. These are various pagan deities that were worshiped by the people of God. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and he carried their ashes to Bethel and he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem to all these other pagan gods. Those also who who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out of the Asherah from the house, he beat it to, to dust and he cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. Not to desecrate, by the way, the people, but anytime you would come in contact with something that was dead, it was desecrating that thing. So he's like desecrating these pagan gods. 
Verse 7, And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the houses of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests of the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Gabah to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were ones left at the gate of the city. And he defiled Topeth, which was in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. People were still burning their kids to Molech, and he put a stop to it. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech and the chamberlain which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz which the kings of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made and the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and he broke in pieces and he cast the dust of them into the brook of the Kidron. And then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, these other gods, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And then he broke in pieces the pillars, and he cut down the Asherim, and he filled their places with the bones of men. I could keep going, and it does, on and on and on of all the things that he does, but here's the whole point. The word of God leads not just to rediscovery of who God is and what God has done and who we are, but it leads eventually to ruthless repentance. Ruthless repentance. When you get a vision of who God really is and what he really has done and what he's called you to and what he's invited you into and what life in the kingdom of God looks like, it leads to ruthless repentance. Nothing categorized as sin will be safe in your life anymore. And this is what happens to Josiah. He is so gripped by the word of God that he immediately just goes gangbusters on these pagan deities. And he's like, he's not just like, all right, take him away. He's like, take him away and let's crush him into little tiny pieces. And then let's pour that on, you know, dead people's bones. And then let's throw that in this valley. And I mean, he just goes crazy on anything that resembles idolatry in his life or the life of the people of God. What would it look like if you got a vision of God, you, de- you rediscovered the word of God in such a way that it led you into ruthless repentance? What is repentance? Well, it's a churchy word <clears throat> uh, that we use a lot. Let me just d- define it. It comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn. So imagine if you're going this way, to repent means you literally turn and you go this way. But there's more to it than that. Charles Spurgeon defines it this way. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It's exactly what you see in Josiah's story. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Repentance, defined as by J.I. Packer, is this. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And what happens when you read the word of God is that you are confronted. Have you noticed You cannot read the word of God without being confronted. And every time the word of God is read and taken seriously, 
the people are confronted, both in Scripture and in history. You see this in Nehemiah 8. The word of God is read by Ezra and all of the people of God. They, they break down weeping because of their sin. And they repent of their sin. You see this in Acts 2. Uh, Peter, the apostle, stands up and he preaches to a group of Jewish people. And he's quoting Old Testament passages like Joel. And, and they hear the word and it, it pierces them to their heart. And they're crushed and they are led into repentance. You see this in my own personal life and in many of our lives as we just walked through the Sermon on the Mount. And you just carefully study the words of Jesus and you read it and you're like, man, Jesus' vision for life in the kingdom is just so different than how I've been living. And it leads to ruthless repentance. And I think one of the greatest dangers facing us in Oklahoma, especially those of us who attend church, is that we are so, it's not like the word of God is lost in the same way it was with Josiah. The word of God is around us and we hear it read and we hear it taught from time to, not, from time, to time. Our problem is that we have grown so accustomed to just receiving great information and not actually doing anything about that information. We are on information overload as a culture and we've kind of added in scripture and the word of God to that same category. So we hear things we're like, well, that was helpful. I just don't know what to do with it. And I won't do anything. We have all these, what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls surface disturbances that never drop down enough to actually bring us to real repentance. Let me read this to you from Lloyd-Jones. He says, it is possible for us to go on content with just listening to or reading the truth and never applying it to ourselves or examining ourselves in the light of it. Is this not one of the most alarming possibilities in the Christian life? We may go regularly to our church, Sunday by Sunday. We may read the Bible, and we may read books which help us to understand the Bible. And ever and again, we are disturbed. We feel a sense of conviction. We feel the rightness of what is put before us, and we are aware of our inadequacy within ourselves. But unfortunately, we do nothing about it. The feeling comes, and then it goes. This, it seems to me, is one of the most terrible dangers in in connection with the Christian life as a whole that we are content with a surface disturbance but never really face it, never really get down to the situation and to the problem. We never proceed to consider this disturbance and to say, well now, what is this and what can I do about it? We may feel something during the service and we may say, I am going to deal with that. But then going out of the service, we start talking to people and we talk about other things. What we felt in the meeting is gone and it never comes back. In this way, we spend our lives aware of superficial, temporary disturbances which never lead to anything at all. It does seem to me that it was the essential trouble with the children of Israel, and we find their condition depicted in the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. They would feel slight disturbances, and the false prophets would heal them too quickly. And listen to this. And we are all false prophets with respect to ourselves. That is one manifestation of this failure to apply the truth. And our excuse, of course is that we are all too busy. There's probably no one in the room as convicted as I am when I read that. When you just uncover a beautiful truth and it doesn't drop down into your soul. This is what happens with Josiah. He's like gripped by the word of God and then that leads to repentance. And then it doesn't stop there. Here's here's the last thing that I think happens and this is beautiful. Look at uh, chapter 23, verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord, your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who, who judged Israel 
or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. And the third and final thing Josiah does is he restored spiritual practices. This is what the word of God leads you to. Not just a sense of rediscovery, who God is, what he's about. Not just ruthless repentance, but it also eventually leads you into restoring spiritual practices. And I love this because if you don't know what the Passover is, it basically is an annual meal, an annual symbolic meal that the people of God would do to remember that they were at one time slaves in Egypt and God had set them free. It was a meal that they would do to show that God actually passed over them and didn't kill them. But because of the blood of the lamb that was slain over the door, they were actually able to be set free and and to go into the promised land safely. And this meal, no one actually started to do. Since the time of Joshua, people just stopped doing this. So think about it. King David, a really great king, didn't actually even, didn't instill the Passover meal to the people of Israel. No other king did this. It wasn't until Josiah had a rediscovery of the word of God that led to a sense of repentance that he didn't just replace stuff or didn't just remove stuff. He began to replace it with better things. Hey, don't worship the pagan gods. Let's do the Passover. Hey, don't live this way. Let's actually live the way that God has intended. He restored spiritual practices. What would it look like in your life if you went gangbusters on everything that kept you between you and God? But you didn't just remove things from your life. You also replaced them with spiritual practices. Things like reading the word. Things like prayer. Fasting. Silence and solitude. Taking a weekly Sabbath. Scripture memorization. And on and on. Things that will fill your soul. This is how revival happens, friends. God has to do it. But it always happens with people rediscovering the word. And then they... They step into a sense of repentance. They begin to remove things from their life. And then they add back in spiritual practices. They replace things. And God begins to just move in dramatic ways on their life. That's how renewal happens. So where do we go from here? This, like, I'm going to just say the most basic way I know how to say it. Read the word. Please, read the word. Read the Bible. Just do it four or five times a week. If you're like, well, I don't know where to start, or I, I, I don't know how to do... Listen, let me just give you one of the best resources that I've ever come across. I'll show you this picture. This is an app that you can download on your phone called Read Scripture. How many of you use this? Some of you? All right, if you don't use this, you absolutely should use this. It's amazing. It'll show short videos that kind of describe and explain what the book of the Bible is all about. And these are like some of the most incredible videos that you will ever find. It's incredibly solid, very helpful, and it has every book of the Bible included. And then it has a reading plan broken down, and it's broken down in a way that's sensible and makes sense. And you don't have to do it every day, but you can do it every day. So it's up to you. Download this. It is amazing. If you're confused, reach out to one of the pastors. Email hello at frontlinechurch.com. We'll set up a meeting with you, and we will do whatever we need to do to train you and resource you and help you to read this book. Read the Bible. Rediscover it. And then last two things I just want to ask you. What is Jesus asking you to remove in your life? Josiah removed all sorts of things, anything that kept him from the Lord. What is he asking you to remove? And then... The final question is, what is he asking you to replace that with? What's he asking you to replace that with? 
The story of Josiah is fascinating. In fact, it ends this way. Uh, this is Second Kings twenty three twenty five. It says, "Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him." Josiah's legacy is amazing, and it all happened because this young boy, at the age of twenty six, rediscovered the word. And in fact, his legacy is so incredible that later you're going to find, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that story? You remember these teenage boys that stand up to Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, and say, no, we're not going to worship these pagan gods. We are going to worship Yahweh, the one true God. You can throw us in the fire, and we don't care if we die. Do you know who they grew up under? King Josiah. And so this legacy went on and on to the next generation where they were so instilled with the ability to fight off any desire to worship anything else other than Yahweh. And yet, it's sad, but judgment still comes to the people of of God. After Josiah, two other kings arise to power. They are both wicked. And you kind of end the Old Testament going, we need a better king. We need a better king. Well, here's the good news, and I'll close with this. The better king eventually did come And he wasn't just someone who brought the word or rediscovered the word. John 1 says that he was the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus, the word of God, shows up for us. And he doesn't just hand us the word, he hands us his life. And Jesus, he doesn't just remove idolatry from our culture. Jesus dies for our idolatry, for our sin and for our failures. And he doesn't just like kind of restore spiritual practices. He comes to people who are dead and he gives them spiritual life. And he raises us from the dead. And listen, that Passover meal that Josiah rediscovered, eventually Jesus holds up that Passover meal and he goes, I want you to change the way you do this because that bread, now that bread is my body that's broken for you. And that wine, that's now my blood that's shed for you. And in 24 hours, Jesus climbed up on a cross. He died in our place for our sins. And he rose again so that we could have forgiveness and life. And follow this God. 